welcome to episode 267 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We are back. Back in action on this amazing series we've been doing. We're talking about all things of the Trinity, and we're going to move into a little bit divine missions. But there's something that I wish that people could understand, and that is, as everybody else is hearing this and joining in our little tiny conversation here, there's no way for them to know that we basically just spent like almost a full hour having hilarious conversation <laughs> yeah. before we started conversing here. And I feel like there's like an energy. Do you sense it? It's like I a do. Vibe. I feel good. I think it's because we haven't had a regular podcast in the last two weeks. It's been, it's been the monologue hours. So there hasn't been the interaction. So I'm stoked. I'm, I'm glad to get back to a regular conversational podcast. And I've got some, I've got some good energy going because it's the Lord's day and, and you know, it's, it's, it's just nice. It's good stuff. Amen. We, we had the first we, snow of the season. There you go. Thanksgiving. I mean, everything's great. Everything is awesome. I had some snow. It was on my car and I was just like, meh. I put it on the defroster and I left this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had to shovel for like an hour yesterday. So, I mean, I live in New Hampshire, so I can't complain too much. I mean, I'm going to, but I can't complain too much. That's why I brought it up. I knew you would appreciate that my sense of snow this morning is totally different than yours. So, that's why I'm I'm so glad we're we're back in action, so to speak. Like we took a detour, a necessary and important, and I hope really helpful detour over the past couple weeks. But in this episode, we're gonna get after considering the ways in which this tripersonal manner of existing in the Godhead is inflected in his external works. So as God is one and three, so God acts as one and three. We're gonna unpack some of that stuff and so much more. But of course, before we do that, we took a little vacation, a sabbatical, if you will, from affirmations and denials. But now we're coming in hot. So what do you got as an affirmation for this episode? Yes. So I'm affirming, you know, we we love our Lutherans in residence, our Lutheran brothers and (laughs) sisters, Chad Bird, Eric Sorensen, and all the guys over at 1517. And, you know, they, they do blog articles, they do podcasts, they do books. They also publish albums of music. So oh, I listened, you. they put out a little uh, a little LP, that's an EP, I don't know, whatever. It's four songs, the single <laughs> of four songs. I really never really understood how all that works. But they put out an Advent Christmas-themed album with four songs on it. You can get it on iTunes, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can get streaming music. It's really good. It's really, really good. It's good music. It's uh, it's theologically rich. It's appropriate for kind of this time of season where we're reflecting on the first and second coming of the, of the Lord. So check it out. It's it'll uh, it'll make a nice addition to whatever kind of music rotation you've got going on in your in your car audio whatever. But yeah, it's good. It's called Jesus Coming Light. It's made by fifteen seventeen Music. You can look that up on iTunes. It's good stuff. There was a pause there. I I really thought you were going to say. It's called Jesus. Yeah. If there it's is a Lutherans. comma. Jesus, comma, coming light. Uh, so it's not Chad Bird singing, which is a little disappointing, but um, but it's still good. I like it. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I've listened to it a couple times now on my way to work and on my way home from work. So check it out. It's really, really good music. All right. I'm gonna, I am going to check that out because I had heard about it, but hadn't yet make taken the plunge and really 
dove into all that good music. I know they put out some music. One of the things I've been surprised about, maybe other listeners are less or more surprised as I am about this, is there's a lot of amazing Lutheran music. And I think part of that is because this strong fidelity to expressing the scriptures, to articulating the scriptures in music, it's really finely tuned to what the Bible proclaims. And more or less, it's not necessarily exclusive solidity, of course, but you sense in Lutheran music that this is importance of like, we've got to be close to the scriptures. If we're going to put words in people's mouths to sing, those words better be from the scriptures. And so I really appreciate this project that they're undergoing. I love that kind of stuff. So yeah. You, I, yeah, I feel like you kind of like inadvertently went up me as in the thing that I'm Maybe. about to affirm, but like you came in hard and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things before we move on to your affirmation, we talked about it. Uh, you should, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It's over the summer. I don't know what number it was, but it was, there was an episode we did with Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen. If you look up the word Lutheran in our website, you're probably going to find like three episodes maybe. And this is one of them. Um, one of the things we talked about was the difference in how we understand how scripture regulates life right. and the Lutherans don't hold to the regulative principle of worship. And so that, that they see a freedom to engage in creative ways of worship that the reformed historically have not appreciated and have actually thought is sublipical. And we, we would agree that that's not a biblical way to do things, but what we need to be careful not to do is to think that just because they're not, engaged in the regulative principle of worship, that they're not still how somehow seeking to be faithful to the scriptures. Right in a on. lot of ways, Lutherans do a better job of restricting themselves to what the scriptures say exactly. than Reformed tend to. We, we have a tendency to run beyond what scripture actually says um, in our sort of sometimes speculative, sometimes logical extrapolations. Um, I don't think those are bad things to do, obviously, but uh, but yeah, so this is this is an example of that. I, I don't really think you're going to see like, uh, you're not going to see like Reformed Theological Seminary writing an album of Christmas hymns to publish and produce and send out there. But um, it, it's a but good thing not? that the, the music is great. It's, uh, they have the song, Lo How a Rose Air Blooming, which most people probably have not heard except maybe like a four-part quartet at Christmas time. I'm speaking out of personal experience on that one, <laughs> but it's not a song. It's not a song you hear, but there's is just, a, they a just do a really song? nice, it is a like classic song, but like, but pe- I don't do, think most people, normal? I don't think most people run into it that frequently. Wow. Interesting. I mean, you don't sing it when you're Christmas caroling. It's too difficult of a song to do that. So like, you're probably only exposed to it during like, maybe like special music during a Christmas season service or something like that. Or if you go to like a cantata or something like that. So, but they have a really fun, a really good arrangement of it. So it's, it's good music. There's a fun arrangement of joy to the world. Uh, I think you'd be edified by anything on this album. So check it out. You can get it anywhere that you can find music. It's free. I don't think you could purchase it even if you wanted to. Um, it's, but it's good stuff. True story. This past summer, I I have the privilege of being scheduled at regular intervals to lead the music in our evening service at my local church. And often it's a little bit more relaxed as sometimes evening services are. And so I I had to pick the music and this was in, I think it was in June. And so I, I, somebody had sent to me who was speaking the whole, the center of the message that was going to be about joy. And they wanted music reflective of this joy, especially joy in Christ, joy in Christ's coming. So I was like, 
oh, I'm definitely doing joy to the world. Like, was it June 22nd? Like, <laughs> yes, I'm definitely doing this. So like, this was like such a setup. So like, you know, it's enough where you can have some kind of conversation with the congregation as you're leading. And so I introduced the music and said like, we're normally used to singing this at a particular time of year. What was this written about? And so of course people were like, it's about, you know, Jesus being born. I was like, wrong. <laughs> it's about the second <laughs> advent. And since, you know, we've already gotten to appreciate the first, we ought to sing this all the time of the year because it's just like a great song. So that's yeah. the way that I like basically try to like put everybody on blast and be like, yeah, this is actually yes. about Christ's second coming, his return. So think about that. Put that in your Christmas pipe and smoke it when you're singing nice. that song. What about you? What are you affirming today? <laughs> Like, like we forgot how just, to like keep this moving. Let's it's, just keep this moving. It's gonna be sixty-five minutes of affirmations and denials today. I love it. People would absolutely love it. So I'm also jumping on this music bandwagon, which I presume this is the Holy Spirit, the great sovereignty of God that we both have an alignment with our affirmations this week. Single song for me. It's a new song released by a band called Wolves at the Gate, whom longtime listeners will recognize as a band that I've certainly affirmed before, but they just released a, a quote unquote Christmas song. It has Christmas themes. It's, it is a Christmas song from like their perspective. Uh, I think, like I said, it's called Lowborn. This has, if you're looking for a song with like really great Trinitarian theology, this is a good example of that song as opposed to some of the things we talked about over the last couple of weeks. And if you're asking, is Jesse recommending to us another song in which there is screaming and somehow he's trying to appropriate that in the Christmas season, the answer to those, both those questions is, you bet I am. <laughs> you know, as Luther might say, is the Pope an example of the Antichrist? So like, the thing is, this is a harder song. <laughs> it's definitely got a little screaming in it, but it's beautiful. It's lovely. And if you're looking to shake up a little bit of your Christmas listening, here's a good way to do it. Go check out Lowborn by Wolves at the Gate. I'm not going to do that, but I'm sure somebody will. <laughs> and if you do, we would love for you to send us your impressions of this song. Like in live time, if you can, like record, make a sense of video of you listening to this song for the first time. That's great. This is the I've just learned song, enough like, to you... know that I'm I'm gonna try. I'm gonna get That's to like fair. the first. I'm gonna get to the first part where they're like, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm just gonna shut it off, and I'm gonna go like I don't know, like wash my ears out with bleach or something. Uh, that that's fair. So I was thinking about this list recently. Here's a quick excursus. I was thinking about this recently, and um, part of this I would like to to go all the way back to like a gateway for me when I listen to music. So uh, my father, who's an amazing pastor, who listens to this podcast. Dad, how's it going? He, he's probably I think spackling it's, the wall in the other room when he's listening. He's, wor he's working hard. There's no doubt. If my father's <laughs> whatever listening to he's us, doing, he's working hard. He's painting. He's shoveling. He's working hard. Uh, I appreciate you, Dad. So, at some point, and you know, like when you're an impressionable person, when you're growing up, and you're you don't even know what to listen to, and you're just kind of like seeking for things of like musical taste. You don't even know what your taste is. Somewhere along the way, my father introduced me to Petra. Petra started all this for me. So I have like this really strong affinity and connection with Petra to this day. I actually just recently listened, really listened to a bunch of Petra albums. But like that Petra rock, like that guitar is what lead me all the way into listening to Lowborn like this past week. So I thank my father for that. I don't know. It's, it's how I was introduced into music. And so to this day, it persists. Nice. I, what was I it for you that. though? Was it like, where, where was like the entry point? Do you know what I mean? Like the first thing that you feel like uh, I listened to this and I really liked it. Well, my first memories of music are my parents used to be in like a, like a 
country western band like before country music became just like pop music with acoustic guitars and like but that's a, not country right but like like actual country music is what they yeah. were they like real country western music, like brooks and dunn and like actual country artists reba mcintyre before she got all poppy and whatever and so like that was my first first memory of music is that that style of music and i like i just that was the only music i ever knew so like for me i like when you really break it down, like there's probably people out there that are going to just like write entire dissertations, like 95 theses <laughs> against Tony on this. But the, when you break it down, like country music, country western music, and pop music are are they're the same thing. Like like the the beats are the same, the rhythms are the same. the The difference the difference is a matter of degrees, not of kind. Where like you might get to something like um and and most. Most American music is is in that same category. So for right. me, like the transition of like country western music to like listening to pop music in my teens, like I you know I was a teenager in like like the late nineties, early two thousands. So like Justin, not Justin Bieber wasn't a thing, but it was like Justin Timberlake and NSYNC. Like that was the big thing. That was the normal transition for me. So I've always been into like pop music. And then, like, I went through my singer-songwriter phase in college. I feel like everybody goes through a singer-songwriter phase, and it was all, like, Cademan's Call and Jars of Clay and Derek <laughs> Webb knew, before he went it. crazy. I knew it. So, but yeah, country-western music was just just the... the uh, even, even once in a while, I'll still throw on... Uh, it was funny. There's, there's this old song called Time Marches On. I think it's by, like, Tracy McGraw. Yeah, I know It's, that like, song. the most generic vanilla country western song ever. And it's funny because if you watch the if you watch the um, the music video for it, you see, like, all the guitar players and their hands are just up and down absolutely 100% <laughs> in sync, which I, I used to think was the coolest thing ever. I was like, oh, it must be so hard for them to do that. Like, look how synchronized they are. And in reality, it just means, like, the music is the most plain, bland rhythm guitar ever. It's like not a sign of any sort of extreme musical talent that you can play a two four rhythm in in uh, sync with other musicians. But yeah, that's I, I don't know why I just suddenly got all Haiti on on a song that I like really enjoy actually. But no, that's yeah. great. I, we got this far without talking about again the like. Do we need to just at least offer here that the ongoing challenge of reuniting you with all members of DC Talk is still yeah. out there? So yeah, the somebody... only one left is is Toby McKeon. Yeah, so. if somebody can close the loop on that, again, that offer still stands, I think, right? Yeah, but it has to be somewhat organic. It can't be like a meet and greet at a concert or something. So like it has, you have to like trick me into running into him at like <laughs> Costco's or something like, which would be tricky because there's no Costco's around here. So, I mean, like an airport, that's why I, can I do an airport with two of them? I think it has to be different. Ooh. We're just like making up the rules of this as it goes, but. Yeah, that's fair. All your stories though, and again, we'll rehearse that another time, all your stories of meeting the two Random that you met people. are fantastic. Somebody needs to go back and search. I don't know where those exist in our catalog. Someday back down there, the people. road, there's going to be a biography of me and my my clandestine, <laughs> not clandestine, my serendipitous <laughs> running into uh, Michael Tate at the airport is going to be like a, a whole chapter in itself. Yeah. We'll have Michael it. One, Tate narrate that section of the audiobook. Of course. One ring to rule them all. Yeah. So <laughs> enough of uh, enough music. What are, you, what are you denying? Let's get a little negative here. We're so, too happy. I wanted to balance out my affirmations and denials today. So oh, since I recommended an Advent uh, album, LP, whatever, for yeah. my affirmation, you I'm just going to deny Advent, Advent entirely for <laughs> my denial. So obviously I am not opposed uh, uh, 
as evidenced by my affirmation of a of a Christmas themed incarnation themed album that was released by Lutherans at Advent time. I'm not right. opposed to celebrating certain certain specific doctrines or certain specific events in redemptive history at cyclical times of year. But since this is the Reformed Brotherhood and not the General Evangelical Brotherhood or the Amen. Lutheran Brotherhood or the Roman Catholic Amen. Brotherhood, we Amen. are contractually obligated at least once a year to talk about how Advent can become sort of this obligatory holy season for people. Right where it, it suddenly dictates everything you do during your worship service. It suddenly dictates exactly what you're preaching on. Um, and, and that's, that's just bad news. So I'm denying any sort of um, impulse in churches to restrict what they do and allow the calendar, apart from the fact that every, every Sunday is the high holy day of the Christian calendar, to allow that to absolutely dictate what it is mm. we do. So... If you want to get together with your your friends and family in December and celebrate the incarnation, more power to you. Jesse and I will will be right there with you. We're going to be unwrapping gifts uh, to celebrate God's you know God's graciousness, and we're going to have good food and good drink to celebrate His blessings, and we're going to talk about the incarnation. But if we decided we didn't want to do that, it's no skin off of Jesus's nose uh, in right terms on. of how he thinks about us or how we are related to him. So I, I, I'm a part of a church that does certain Advent practices. I'm sure Jesse's church does certain kinds of Advent practices. I don't right. see anything wrong with that as long as they're not becoming obligatory holy observances, which they certainly have a, a danger to become. But there is this weird impulse in the evangelical world to suddenly become like closeted Roman Catholics during certain parts of the liturgical calendar. So that's kind of what I'm denying against is like, if you're going to be Protestant, if you're going to, if you're going to be reformed, then be reformed. And that means that maybe you don't have to preach out of Luke in, you know, Luke two in the end of December, or maybe you don't have to preach out of Luke 24 at the end of at the, you know, in April or whenever Easter happens to fall. Um, but at the same time, and it's funny that you mentioned this, maybe we should be singing Christmas hymns in July or June sometime. Right on. Uh, you know, sometimes it's more appropriate when you're, when you're preaching through, uh, you're preaching through Matthew to do a Christmas hymn on that week when you start the sermon series and you're in the nativity accounts or you're talking about the genealogy, um, you know, that the text should be driving us and it's okay for pastors to maybe take a sidestep from their normal Lectio Continua to do a seasonal series or something like that. That's totally fine. But yeah, I just wanted to make sure that people didn't think I was suddenly not regulating my life by the scriptures, <laughs> by suggesting an Advent hymn CD for, uh, for this week's affirmation. It's more about with those things, like we talked about before, like intent preceding that content. Right. Like there's nothing wrong with celebrating the incarnation. Right. And if, if that celebration coincides with a part of the year where people are in some ways predisposed because of the calendar or the way that we focus to look at those things, that's okay. But they shouldn't be exclusively defined right. by that. Yeah. And so, and also like you and I have talked about before, I think we, we have a whole episode, in fact, about holy days right. and about making sure that let's make the first things, the first things yeah. and the main things, the plain things. And so yeah. that fact is clearly established in scripture that the Lord's day, that one in seven is a holiday. 
So like, it doesn't matter what your calendar says. We shouldn't try to placate that or superimpose some other sense of responsibility on people's conscience because right. the calendar says, well, you ought to have, and pick what it is. You ought to have this type of service or you ought to meet on this type of day before this type of calendar day approaches. Like right. what we really need is the hearts that are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and are willing to take up the cause of this holy day, which is the Lord's day. Yeah. And to basically be more aware, I think, of its special nature. And that, yeah. I think, is will manifestly change the way in which we worship. We, we've been yeah. about that, I think, since the very beginning. Yeah. And I think the good, a good rule of thumb in terms of your own perspectives on things like Christmas, Easter, Ash Wednesday. I mean, Ash Wednesday is a whole different Ooh. kind of a thing. Uh, we have our, we do have our own liturgical celebration that we call scorched earth Wednesday. Uh, (laughs) but that's a whole different thing. We still have a couple months before we get there. I think a good rule of thumb when you're thinking about how you're thinking about these kinds of things is if you would be a little bit offended if your pastor didn't preach an incarnation sermon on December 26th, then you, you really need to step back and think about why that is. If you think that there's some sort of special holiness associated with the Sunday nearest December 25th, um, if you think that there's some sort of special efficacy to... Uh, going to church on the first Sunday after the first full moon of the first day of spring, which is how we arbitrarily determine when Easter is, right? It's it's a total, it doesn't come from scripture. It's just an arbitrary way of determining it that the church has agreed on. Um, if you If you think there's some sort of special efficacy where like you would feel a little bit more guilty about missing church on sun on Easter right. Sunday than you would any other Sunday um, or you'd think twice about about planning a vacation that spans over that week so you could be at home with your church family because it's extra important for you to be home for Easter then maybe I feel like I'm doing a, you might be a redneck skit. You might be a closeted (laughs) papist. No, Um, you, you probably should step back a little bit and think about that. If you, if you coming into this last, you know, last Sunday in, uh, in November feel like, I can't, I'm so glad it's Advent because I just was in this dry season and Advent's really going to rejuvenate me. No, no, no. Like what should rejuvenate you is the weekly, the weekly preaching of the word and the, whatever cycle you're on, whatever, whatever, you know, frequency you're on, the, the, the word and sacraments, that's what should rejuvenate you. Not this arbitrary four weeks that we've set aside or whatever it is in, in winter to lead up to Christmas, which is also arbitrarily set as a date in, in December. So that's enough pontificating on that. We can, I'm sure that we'll have some more time to talk about this as we go through the next couple of weeks. Yeah. We have our sure. own but like that, anti-liturgical calendar. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but, but you're right. Like it's, it's one of those things like, yeah, use it and use it to the glory of God, but don't abuse it in such a way that it becomes like restrictive or constrictive. Right. And there's, you got to thread that needle loved ones, yep. but it's okay to lean into it and to celebrate it. It's also okay to push back against it, I suppose, and say like, when it becomes the kind of thing that's like we have to do, or people are offended because we don't do this kind of thing, right. or th- yep. the the environment doesn't look this kind of way, as if like that's somehow yeah. is yep. important. Like you can be like, no, nah, that's not how any of this works. Like in some ways, I think like the the reform tradition is one of great liberty and freedom right. in Christ. Right. It's always pushing it back against the external trappings to get to the center of gravity. That's what's after. And I love that. So mm-hmm. we all need that. All of us from time to time in the, in the different things that we celebrate and we do. Yep. Yep. So what about you? What are you denying real quick? So I think we have expressed that maybe we've already offended people 
that can kind of be our jam inadvertently. So let's <laughs> um, we'll, we'll just go headlong into that. Let's. I, I'm going to make a, I, I think you're not going to be, well, I know you and I are going to be totally aligned in this, but let me give a denial that I think will, where we can take offense at something and also maybe at the same time offend other people who might say, <laughs> What's the big deal? So here we go. <laughs> so I'm going to point people like very cautiously to an article that was published in the Wall Street Journal in the arts and entertainment section yesterday. I'm pointing to you to it cautiously because depending how you feel, if you're like Tony and I, there's definitely a serious second commandment violation, even in pulling up the article, but it's titled, and here's what I'm denying against fans, poor funding and faith into a hit drama about Jesus. And the, oh, the subtitle is crowdfunding has raised millions of dollars for quote, the chosen end quote, an ambitious series exploring characters from the new Testament. Fans have already chipped in enough for three seasons and are driving ticket sales for a Christmas special coming to movie theaters end quote. So um, I guess the denial is, can anything really good come out of this thing? <laughs> That's all I gotta yeah. say. Just a bunch of evangelicals that don't really believe in Sola Scriptura is really, it's, I mean, it's no quarter November, right? We don't have to pull our punches. Isn't that the we rule don't. that, that Dougie Wilson has set aside? Thank yeah, this you, is just Doug the stupid, this is just the stupidest thing. It's just dumb. It's just bad, bad, bad idea. And I know everybody, I know people are like, oh, but are you telling me the passion of the Christ is a second? Com yes. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. For sure. Yes. For sure. It's like not only a second commandment violation, it's like a gross, it's offensive, egregious. inaccurate second commandment, commandment violation. And you know, like Facebook thinks I want to see all these ads about the chosen because a lot of what I say on Facebook has to do with Jesus. I get so like mad when I see them and like, I'll, I'll admit like I watch them cause I want to, I kind of want to know what's going on. I know that's not Jesus. So like I'm uh, my, my conscience is clean in looking at what these people think is a representation of Jesus and anal analyzing it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily suggest other people do that. That's something right. that's between you and your conscience and God, whether that's something that is going to lead you down a path you shouldn't go. But I, at least in my own personal life, I, I feel like I've matured to a point where I can handle that and not be drawn into idolatry. But the, just the way they portray Jesus is so casual. It's so, he's joking around. I mean, I'm sure Jesus made jokes. Like he was a human person. He was a guy. Like I'm sure he, I'm sure he laughed when one of the disciples passed gas in front of a bunch of people. Like I'm sure that when he was a teenager and a cute girl walked by, he blushed. Like those are real things that are not sinful, but like the the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us any of that, and it doesn't tell right. us any of that for a reason. And the reason is that the the way that the Bible has revealed Christ to us, we are to take him seriously and not casually. And so, I, the, my biggest concern with the chosen, at least, and granted, I haven't seen it, but from the from what Facebook is por portraying as the hook, is that Jesus is portrayed as this like totally regular human with like no fault, like no right. no like. Uh, no, no air about him of seriousness. It's very much like joking around. It's very much, you know, he's splashing the disciples with water once in a while and they're laughing and they're like, it, it's just very <laughs> casual and very, it's just very silly. Like it makes Jesus silly. And I don't, yeah. Like, like, Jesus, like he's having a super soaker fight, like with the disciples. No, like there's a scene where they're, I think they're like, 
I don't know, they're out at a well or something like that, and oh, he, they're like drawing great. water, and he's, I don't know, he's like splashing them and like laughing. Like the kind of stuff you would do like with a bunch of your guy friends. Like, you, like you're at the lake and you're fishing and you like kick a bunch of water at him yeah. or something like that. Like that kind of stuff. I have no doubt that that kind of thing probably happened during the three years that these guys were, were living together and traveling together and learning and doing life together. Uh, like I said, I, I'm sure that if one of the disciples pass gas in the middle of a meal, which is something that happens to everybody at some point. I'm sure Jesus had a good <laughs> chuckle about that. That's, that's totally fine. But the, again, like I said, that's the Bible did not recount those uh, events right. to us. It's not helpful. To and us. so even though we, we can theorize and, and be pr- on pretty good grounds to assume those kinds of things happen because of what it means for Christ to be a, a human adult male, human males haven't changed that much in the last 2000 years. Um, it's funny. There's a, there's a funny video that's going around of these guys. I think it's in Saudi Arabia, some sort of Middle Eastern country. And they're at, they're at some sort of like, it's got to be like a zoo or, or like the equivalent of like a safari they're driving. And, and the guy has like hot dog buns and he like, he puts his hand up and a camel sticks his head in the windows eating the hot dog buns. <laughs> and the guy in the driver's seat is losing his mind, freaking out. You can tell he's just terrified of this thing. And the guy keeps on moving the hot dog buns closer to the guy so that the guy keeps freaking out more. And I was like, that's, there are some universal things that guys will always do to each other. Like that kind of stuff. The reason it, it resonates is because it's, it's universal. It's, just funny that kind of stuff i'm sure jesus did i'm sure he played jokes and pranks on his disciples and they had they they laughed and they told funny stories and and it but but the bible does not focus on those things it doesn't communicate those things to us and there's a reason for that and yeah, so when a, sure. when a series like chosen chooses to elevate those things either as part maybe this is just that's the only scene that they do it in but they've used that as the way to sort of like hook you into the series um it, it just it just it's not worth your time. I mean, just you could spend spend that hour or whatever it is reading the Bible, and you'd be For much sure. better off. Be much more productive and more efficacious. So, just so people don't think that uh, you're well off the mark there, let me just read quickly a couple sentences from this article that I think actually will take what you're saying to the next level. So, and I'm quoting now from the Wall Street Journal. So, the journal says Dallas Jenkins, the filmmaker who created The Chosen, says the show style is modeled more on Friday Night Lights than other Christian TV shows and movies. For instance, Mary Magdalene relapses into vice. The apostle Matthew is on the autism spectrum. Jesus' miracles get backstories. By fleshing out biblical characters across multiple seasons, the show has inspired fan discussion, debate, and squabbling on a level more typical of Marvel or Star Wars series, except that for chosen fans... The dynamic is fueled by religious faith, end quote. So you can see this is like crowdsourcing to like an epic degree. I don't see that there's a lot in this that's going to be helpful or useful. I think this is going to be the kind of thing that many people, maybe even us, will in due time come back and say, let's talk about what happened on this episode and how weird it is and how this is not anything like the God of the Bible. And so this is entertainment at its maybe finest or worst in the sense that it's true (laughs) entertainment value. That's what we're after here. But of course, there are going to be people. I mean, you and I know there are going to be people that are going to latch onto this and try to connect with this on on a spiritual level and somehow try to find something in this that now brings them closer to God. When ironically, these are the very things that bring us further away from the person of God, because he's already disclosed, as you said, articulately, everything we need to know for life and for health and for wellness when it comes to our relationship with him. So I just laughed out loud when I read like, (laughs) it's modeled the more like pick. If I said to you, 
What do you think they modeled this on? Would Friday Night Lights be like anywhere in the top 20 things? Like, what no, is that about? No, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't even, I don't know what that is. I mean, I know what Friday Night Lights is, but I don't, I don't know enough about that to have a concept of what that even means. You know what else was crowdsourced? The golden calf. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, like, like that's another example of a group of people coming together to fund an inaccurate oh image Lord. of God that they think is going to help oh. them to worship better. Like oh, it's so it, like, great. this is the same thing we've been doing for 5,000 years now or whatever. That's, that's so I great. would apologize for hijacking your denial, but you knew full well I was going to hijack this. Yeah, denial. no, that was that was. I didn't anticipate that, but now I've got this image in my head of like a Kickstarter, and yeah. because because here's the thing, you're in, and I don't want to take. We got to get into our topic. I don't want to take too much away, but maybe we can kind of ease into it, so to speak. You're right in that if when you read this is that passage, it's it is idolatry connected to Yahweh. Right. You know, they're, they're saying like this is the God who brought you out. They're not like explicitly forsaking right. they're trying to interpret Yahweh mm-hmm. and that's the problem that is the worst kind of adultery yep, yep. it's so, it, yeah it's worse than it's worse than making an idol of some other exactly. some other entity yeah it's way worse it's more offensive it, yeah exactly because it is a straight up perversion as opposed to a like complete forsakenness yeah of god Yep. And, and yeah, so I mean, there's so much more we could say there, but yeah, you you had me when you were like, you know, what else is crowdsourced? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, and I can just see this is going to sound a little bit more bombastic than I'm usually apt to be, but I could see like on Judgment Day, the makers of this film being like God, being like, why would you do that? Like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And 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 the people are like, I don't know. The people gave us the money and we threw it in the fire and this TV show came out. Like, <laughs> like it's gonna be like that's like we were just trying to do the right thing. I don't know why you're getting so mad at me. Yeah. And he's like, because I told you not to do it. Like I told yeah. you not to do it. And this is the thing, like I'm kind of channeling like Scott Clark a little bit here. Like this is this is Original. the quest for religious certainty and, and the quest for illegitimate religious mm. knowledge. Like this is this is people trying to come up with some image of Jesus that they can worship that fits their preconceptions right and fits on. their needs. That's explicitly going beyond and in some cases I think contrary to what the scripture reveals. Because at the end of the day, the people who are really jazzed up about this, they don't actually believe in Sola Scriptura. So Scripture really is not enough for them. And that's that. whether it's I use the Jesus Storybook Bible with my kids because I can't I can't expect them to get anything if I just read the Bible to them. Well, is the Scripture sufficient for your children or not? Is the scripture right. sufficient for your own personal piety or not? Is the scripture sufficient for your Bethmore Bible study or not? Like, like I don't mean to be like super pointed, although I'm being super pointed, but this really is just a flat out denial of Sola Scriptura. It's a, it's a denial. It's the exact same reason, uh, why the, the churches in Rome and Constantinople all have pictures is because they, they don't think that the scriptures are sufficient. And right. it's the, the Heidelberg catechism, just to put a pin on this and then we'll move on. The Heidelberg catechism has the most like fire answer to this. The question, I think it's question 98. It basically is like, may we not tolerate pictures in the churches adds books for the lady. And basically like to put that into modern speak, it's like, can't we have pictures for the idiots they can't read? Like, can't we just have pictures so all of the illiterate people can learn from the pictures because they can't read? And the answer is no, because we should not be wiser than God who will not have his people taught by dumb idols, not dumb as in stupid, although they are dumb as in unspeaking silent idols, but 
by the lively preaching of his word. So the way that we train the laity that cannot read, whether that's our children or illiterate people or people who just are not capable of, for whatever reason, of coming to the scriptures and appropriating themselves is not by creating images. It's by teaching them verbally by the preaching of the word. So yeah, this is just like, if they want to crowdsource something where like, like a person gets up there and, and just reads the Bible on the screen and like, okay, I'll crowdsource that. I'll give my money to that. <laughs> if more people will be exposed to the scriptures by something like that, then absolutely I'll, I'll outsource that. But don't, don't come at me with this nonsense about some fake Jesus that you're going to put up in front of people and say Get it's the gospel. That weak sauce out of here. If he were still alive, how much would John Owen just lose his mind? <laughs> he would. Like, what would he, he write? Would. Like, John Owen on Twitter. John Owen on, like, it, it, in, like, blog format. Like, what would he I don't, write I don't about know. It'd be, stuff? like, one of those 17 deep Twitter threads. <laughs> but the first one would be, like, get me my red boots because I've got some fannies to kick. <laughs> yeah. Signed, yeah, John are, Owen. These red boots are made for walking. That's yes. for sure. Speaking of walking, let's yes, walk on over to our, our topic for the day. There you so, go. We are going to talk, I know this is like the third week in a row that I've said we're going to talk about this, and we actually are. So we're in, we're in progress of this Trinity series, which is within the progress of this overall Fundamentals of the Faith series that we're working on, which is just, that's just the podcast now. We're just doing Fundamentals of the Faith for the foreseeable future. And so we've talked about, uh, in the Trinity, we've talked about some of the basic biblical foundations. We talked about some of the basic sort of theological contours. And then we talked about the divine processions and the divine processions right. are the, the, the intra-Trinitarian relations between the persons. They are the only thing that makes the father, not the son is that he's the father of the son instead of the son of the father. It's, it's a sort of self-referential reality that the processions are the processions, right? They're the fundamental reality that distinguish the persons from each other. It's not obedience. It's not authority. It's not some, it's not some understanding of, um, a procession of dignity or procession of being or anything like that. It's that the father and the son relate to each other as father and son. And the spirit relates to the father and son as that who is breathed out by the father and son together. Uh, that doesn't say much. I mean, we, we acknowledge that what that actually means is mysterious and that we're limited in, in how far we can go with that. But as I've mentioned a couple times now, those processions are not abstracted and totally separate from the work that the father sends the son to do and the work that the father and the son together send the spirit to do in creation. And that work Broadly speaking, we call the temporal missions or the created missions of the Father or of the Son and the Spirit. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and this will flesh out more when we get to Christology and pneumatology. We'll talk about the details right. of those missions in terms of, you know, the spirit of holiness and the gifts of the Spirit. And, and we'll talk about that. But today we're going to focus more on what does it actually mean when we say that the Son is sent into the world or that the Spirit is sent into the world. And, and particularly how it is that we understand the relation, the, the one directional arrow from the processions to the missions, because classically speaking, and I think, I think that the first place you see this really, really expressed is in Aquinas, although there's trajectories and antecedents to it before that. Classically speaking, the, the, the temporal missions are 
basically extensions of the eternal processions. So it's not as though the son and the spirit have their eternal mission or their eternal processions, and those are hermetically sealed. And then arbitrarily, they're also sent into the world. It's that the the son relating to the father as the son extends into, into the creative act and then also into creation itself in the work of the sun as part of the created mission. So there, we shouldn't necessarily think of them as, as two distinct things. We should think of almost like two sides of the same coin. There's the eternal procession or the eternal generation of the sun. And that as the sun now enters into creation, the, the sun has a particular mission that is proper to the sun because of the eternal procession. Now we talked at length. I talked at length. Jesse didn't say much because he didn't want to get involved in a controversy that he wasn't already involved in. But I talked at length about how one of the major EFS errors that Owen Strahan and others are making is they're making that one directional arrow. They're making two directions and that's a big problem. So before we go on more than that, I want to take a breath and just recap that. The, the temporal created missions of the sun and the spirit are what we call everything that those persons do as they enter into creation. So it encompasses not only the actual, uh, the actual kind of movement into creation, which is what we're most going to focus on, I think, today, but it also would encompass all the work and all of the different works that they do. So in terms of Christology, the person and work of Christ, when we get to Christology, we'll talk about the person, which is kind of the metaphysics and the work. That's part of the mission. But today we're just going to focus on kind of that movement into creation and how it relates to who those persons always were in eternity past. And this is super important and really helpful in our conversation right now, because we're setting this up in distinction to this idea that somehow what God does is who God is. So it's, it's like totally opposite, actually saying like divine identity informs this divine action. So God's triune identity informs our understanding of God's triune actions in two areas. Like in, I would say like kind of more traditional reform theology, which specify how the three persons relate to one another within the context of their indivisible activity towards creatures. Right. And so when we speak of this idea of like, what does it mean to talk about like divine missions? Like, is this divine mission impossible? Like in some (laughs) ways, kind of like, that's kind of what we're after is the doctrine of divine missions reveals how the mystery of God's tri-personal being shines forth in God's tri-personal actions toward his creatures. So in Trinitarian theology, like quote unquote mission, just so we're clear, is referring to this sending of one divine person by another for a specific purpose in relation to our salvation. That's kind of the end point here. Right. But we do want to emphasize everything you just said. I think traditional evangelical theology says, well, I understand the persons of God by what they do, but that's actually getting things flipped around and twisted. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we have to sort of understand that there is a certain level of mystery behind how we have to talk about this. So while it, it may seem like um, it may seem like we are on more concrete grounds when we talk about the missions of the persons as opposed to the processions of the person or in contradiction con, con, contrast to the, the processions, the missions of the persons actually are a bit more mysterious in some ways. And sure. we'll flesh some of that out when we get to uh, next week, when we talk about inseparable operations, because while it is true that the scripture reveals 
uh, uses language that states that the father sends the son and right. the, the, the father and son together send the spirit. We are sort of looking at those um, those things and we have to sort of put an asterisk on them because the doctrine of inseparable operations means that any any activity that is oriented towards creation outside of the Trinity is actually a single unified work of all three persons. So while it, and this is where the EFS advocates just miss it, right? If, if it's, if what I just said is true, that uh, the inseparable operations is true, then when we talk about the father sending the son, we also are talking about, and perhaps in a different way, perhaps not, but we are also talking about the fact that the son sends himself and the spirit sends right. the son. Right. And it's funny because I've been, I've been prepping for some of these response articles that I'm, I'm working on, uh, for some of Owen Strahan's quotes. And there's actually a spot, I believe it's Augustine, he actually points out a spot in the scripture where it does say that the spirit sends the son, or the, rather it says, it's in Isaiah, and the son actually says that I was sent by the Lord and his spirit. So so we do sometimes think of these these missions as one person acting distinctly upon another, with with the absence of the other two. But the scriptural testimony is actually far more complicated than that, right? It's pretty clear to us that the Father and Son send the Spirit, but we don't see in scripture language talking about the Spirit sending himself. But we affirm, because of what the scripture says about the Trinity, that any external act of the Trinity is a single unified act. So the right. Spirit does send him. So we do get these glimpses, right? We, would, we, we probably wouldn't find, if we weren't looking very carefully, we wouldn't find a passage talking about the Spirit sending the Son. But when you look carefully at the, especially prophetic stuff, which gives us a little bit more of a glimpse behind the curtain than other places, there is this passage where it clearly says the son, the son says, or the servant says that he was sent by the Lord and his spirit. So we have to, we have to, we have to reason with that. And so why I say it's more mysterious is because when we talk about the father relating to the son as father, we may not know exactly what we're saying, but there's no, there's no, um, there's no asterisks to that. When we say that the first person relates to the second person by way of order as the first person instead of the second person, right? There's that that sort of logical numbering. When we say that, there's no there's no like asterisk saying, but we also have to sort of qualify that. We don't have to qualify that. The first person relates to the first per to the second person as the first person. That may not mean a lot. There may not be a lot of content to that sentence, but that's not a sentence that has to be overly qualified. With the missions, we have to do a lot of that kind of qualification. Right. So I only say that and in a very expanded form, a lot more than I probably should have, but I only say that to say what we're going to say during the rest of this episode has to be bounded and constrained by this doctrine of inseparable operations that we're going to say next. So, so so what we want to do is we want to talk about the father sending the son. I mean, we did a whole episode on the covenant of redemption, so we have to talk about that a little bit, but we're not going to get too far into the weeds on that, but that's where we're going. Right. I'm going to shoehorn it even like, I'm going to expand it even more. I'm going to shoehorn this by maybe going in a direction that I shouldn't go, but just to bring it up, cause you brought it up and I think it might be helpful for people is to speak of like this idea of the doctrine of appropriations. Yes. So when we're talking about, which would be, we're, let's get nerdy, right? We can't we'll get a little technical yeah. here. Oh yeah, for sure. Like this idea of the doctrine of appropriations, it really helps us to appreciate everything Antonio just said, like why the scriptures characteristically appropriate, hence the name, for example, the act of predestination to say the father even though it's clear that each divine person is an agent of God's electing grace. Right. So for instance, let's just like get it out there. So that everybody knows the language we're talking about here and it sets the appropriate table. Like here's your play setting for the meal you're about to have. 
we talk about the father as the father is the principle of the son and the spirit. That is, he eternally generates the son and he's eternally breathes forth the spirit. His personal character in my metaphor, like shining forth in a special way in predestination, the principal act of the Trinity in salvation is the father. But here we have the son. And so because the son is eternally generated by the father and because he eternally breathes forth the spirit, the son's personal character shines forth in a special way in the work of redemption. Since the work of redemption flows from like this divine predestination and issues in the work of sanctification. And then here comes the Holy Spirit who again, like fully involved in all this work, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son as the bond of God's tripersonal perfection. Again, here's that tripersonal nature. His personal character shines forth in a special way in the work of sanctification. Since the work of sanctification brings the acts of predestination and redemption to like this divinely appointed goal, right. making us a habitation for the triune God. So hopefully people are seeing like all that stuff that I just said, like that's kind of like, would you say it's part and parcel of like doctrine of appropriations? Like we speak yeah. in this way because we're trying to be specific while at the same time giving claim to all of God's work as part of all of who God is. Yeah. And you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll get into the doctrine of appropriations a lot more next week because that's, that's part and parcel with how you have to understand inseparable operations. But the, the appropriate, the doctrine of appropriations um, is, is not to say that, you know, because the, the scripture appropriates the act of creation to the father. It's not to say that the Son and Spirit are not. It also appropriates the act of creation to the Son and the Spirit in yeah, ways exactly. appropriate to sort to of them. play on words there to them. So and, and so this is where it gets tricky, is because when we talk about the eternal processions, what we are manifestly not saying is that the Father is God in a fatherly way and the right. Son is God in a sonly way. Right. And therefore they are God in two different ways from each other. That's that's the opposite Negative. of what we're saying. That's what the EFS advocates are saying. That's what Doug Wilson is saying. That's what uh, you know, like that's what uh some of the early church heretics were saying. That's what uh one of the people that Arius is res- or that um, Augustine is responding to is saying that Owen Strahan wants to say Augustine's actually an EFS advocate, but he's responding to basically an EFS advocate. That's not what we're saying. However, now that we're talking about the created missions or the temporal missions of the persons, that's actually what we're saying now. So when we say that the son creates, we're saying the father, son, and the spirit create as one. They, they're one yeah. agent in the act of creation. Nevertheless, the scripture reveals to us ways that we can see and uh, Adonis Vidu's analogy is so helpful on this. He talks about it like a wine tasting, right? If you don't know anything about about wine, you can't pick any flavors out. You might be able to say like, I don't know, this tastes a little bit like grape. Or you might be able to say like, I don't know, this I tastes like I'm drinking dirt. Well, there's a word for that in in wine tasting. If you know wine, you can pick out all of those notes. That's what, that's what the doctrine of the appropriations is like. When I look at creation... And I look at the act of God in creation. If I if I only know God in sort of this abstract concept, it's impossible for me to pick out the persons of the Trinity. Right. In some ways, this is why the, the the Old Testament sort of speaks in these generic ways. Because although we've made the argument, and I stand by that argument, that the Old Testament is a thoroughly Trinitarian document, 
it still is speaking in sort of this veiled, mysterious way in some instances. So sometimes it talks without any appropriation to a specific person. Sometimes it talks with appropriation to specific persons. But when you now have the light that's cast on on the act of creation by the fact of the Trinity and the way that the Trinity is, is explained and revealed in the New Testament, we can see this part of creation tastes a little bit more like the son than it tastes like the father. Right. I'm detecting a note of Holy spirit in this act of <laughs> sanctification, right? Just like you might, I mean, you listen to distilling theology. They talk about all these different, this smells like campfire. This tastes, this reminds me of having peaches in Georgia with my father, when, you know, all these different things that's only available to someone who really truly understands the nuances of scotch or whiskey right. or whatever it is they're tasting. So also when we look at the missions of the sun and the spirit in creation, which are different than are, are different conceptually than God acting in creation. Exactly. Because the father doesn't have a, a temporal mission, but he still acts within creation. He acts primarily through his son and spirit in terms of how he's revealed, but that doesn't mean he's not acting in creation. So when we talk about the we talk about this, we have to also now connect this to the processions. And and maybe we need to do a little bit more work on this when we get to the uh individual or the distinct sections on Christology and pneumatology. But there's this is something I've been puzzling around in my mind. Actually, it's funny because we did our very first systematic theology series. I think this was like episode 15 or 16 when we got to pneumatology. And it kind of hit me all of a sudden that the roles or the, the, the language used of the persons of the Trinity and the way that we think about the persons of the Trinity relating to each other, even in some Western models that I'm not super, super jazzed up about, like the Holy Spirit being the bond of love between the Father and the Son, right? That's very Augustinian, very Western right. Aquinas language. There's a lot to commend about it, but there's also a lot of issues with it. But when you think about the way we've reasoned about how it is that the Trinity functions, right? The Father is the lover, the Son is the beloved, and the Spirit is the bond of love between the two. That's that's Augustine's analogy or Augustine's description. Each of those roles, each of those things, plays a central understanding, a central part of understanding our own salvation. And that's why it's important for us to tie these created or temporal missions to the processions, because it would not have been fitting it wouldn't, I mean, and, and I, I only bring this up because I actually misrepresented James White on this because I was trying to be charitable. And I, I guess, I guess I just didn't understand what he was saying in Forgotten Trinity, which is a book that I read with profit, you know, before I started seminary, I just read through it again. There's a lot of really good stuff in there, but right. in that, in that book, he has this phrase that I, I, I thought I was misunderstanding. And it says, think of it this way. This is in uh, chapter four and it's, nope, sorry, not chapter four. Uh, it's on page 66, uh, which I think is probably in one of the first couple chapters. He says, think of it this way. In eternity past, the father, son, and spirit voluntarily and freely chose the roles they would take in bringing about the redemption of God's people. Now, I thought that maybe this was kind of just a uh, sort of like a weird way of speaking and then uh, he says something similar about the Holy Spirit later. And so I actually reached out to him on Twitter and he wrote, he was kind enough to write a clarifying article on, on the Alpha and Omega blog. And he actually confirmed that in his view, he thinks it's a question we can't really answer. He thinks that it's beyond what the scriptures tell us to say that the, the father couldn't have been incarnated. And he has this sort of 
almost Molinist way of approaching it where he's kind of like, well, if God had created the world differently, then maybe the father could have been the one that came into creation to sacrifice himself instead of the son. So he's taking kind of this possible world's approach. But at the end of the day, what he's saying is, no, the father, the, the economy of redemption could have been different. The, the created missions could have been different. The Holy Spirit could have come in a different circumstance and a different schema of redemption and been the incarnate one who dies. for right. the, you know, He's saying that. And so this isn't some obscure out of the way kind of way of thinking. This is actually a pretty common thing among evangelicals that will basically say like, well, yeah, the son, the son didn't have to be the son. The son could have been the Holy spirit, I guess, because they're all spirit. They're all the same. But that, that, that in my mind, it just blows my mind to be like, well, of course the son couldn't do the, the son didn't have to be the son. What's well, right in the, it's like that uh, Ben Shapiro meme. Like it's right in the name, like the son right. of God is the son is the son of God, and so to say that the created missions or that the the eternal procession of the son being the son of the father has no bearing whatsoever on the created mission of the son being the son of the father uh, and the second Adam that doesn't work, and and this ties into our redemption not just in in what sort of sequence and person you know sort of role in the economy. I'm trying to avoid the word role because it has so much baggage these days in the, in the conversation, <laughs> but I'm having trouble. The position or the place or the function that yeah. each person who has a created mission has in the economy of redemption is fixed based on who they are in eternity. Past, exactly. Right? right. So, so this is very important as we understand salvation, because if we think about it, right, well, adoption, well, what, what does the son do in, in his role in, in, um, the economy of redemption. He is adopted as the second Adam and elevated to the, and given the name above all names. Well, guess what? Christian Christian, right? We are also given the name above all names in a different right. way, but we are adopted by grace, the same way that the son, according to his humanity was adopted as a reward for his works. And we talked about this in the covenant redemption, right? The reason that, you know, the marriage analogy works is because when, when a woman marries someone's son, she becomes the offspring of that person by marriage. So when we are united to the son in union with Christ and the analogy of marriage use is used, it makes sense because the eternal relation between the father and the son is the one of sonship. The son has a relationship of sonship with the father. Well, now we have a relationship of sonship as we are united. We inherit the sonship of the son. We inherit, in some ways, the eternal sonship of the son becomes ours in the temporal union of Christ, right? Or this Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit unites us to the Father and the Son. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? Or who is the Holy Spirit in eternity past? Well, According to Augustine, and although I have some challenges with this, the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. Well, what is the Holy Spirit in, in this? He's the spirit of adoption, right? So all of this is scripturally based, that right. the Holy Spirit unites the Father and the Son in eternity past, and he makes us son. When the, when the Father or when, when Christ gives us the authority to be called children of God, it is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that that authority is executed. That's why he is the spirit of adoption and why through him we can cry, Abba, Father. So all of this, I'm, I'm kind of frantic because we're getting to the end of this episode and there's so much more to say. So to try, dear listener, to sort of like keep this in the back of your mind when we get to the... Uh, Christology section, we talk about the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit, we're going to unpack this more. But right. understanding this relationship between the eternal processions 
and the created temporal missions, understanding that that's actually not, it's not two distinct things that are now sort of like bound together. But in reality, the, the mission of the sun and the mission of the spirit are outflowings or extensions of their eternal identity and their eternal yes. procession or their eternal relation to the father is vital to understanding a thoroughly reformed way of looking at salvation. The reason union with Christ adoption, I had never even heard of the concept of adoption until I started studying reformed theology. I just, it wasn't a, so it wasn't a soteriological category that I was even aware of. I was reading the Bible. So all of these passages about sonship, they were there. They were kind of pickling around in the back of my brain until I had a category for them, but I didn't have a theological framework to talk about the doctrine of adoption until I started studying Reformed theology. Well, those categories, the marriage analogies, the sonship analogies, the inheritance analogies, all of those things don't make sense unless we understand this connection. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a mirror of the interpenetration of the persons of the Trinity in their perichoretic relations, right? To throw a ton of really theological babble at you. The, the, there's this beautiful passage, if I had prepared for this episode, I will have pulled it up, but somewhere in the very early parts of the Institutes, when, when Calvin's talking about the, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, he, he pulls out that passage in John, I think it's John 20, where he says, the father is in the son and the son is in the father. Right. And he's basically making the point that, that persons, human persons, created persons are exterior persons. Jesse is an exterior person to me. We, as, as close as we may be, as well as we know each other, Jesse is always going to be the, on the outside of my person. That doesn't change in eternity. That wouldn't change if we were spiritual beings. Angels are exterior persons to each other. The father and the son and the spirit are interior persons. So the, the person of the son is in the father and the person of the father is in the son. And, and so also each relation with the spirit. Well, the spirit is in us and then that makes us in God. So these, right. these relations between the processions and the, the, the missions cannot, they cannot be overemphasized. All of our salvation rests and flows out of these, uh, this, this connection that we're trying to make here. Right. That's right on. I'm going to sneak in a quick recommendation as we bring this uh, conversation to a close. I think actually we've talked about this book before, but I would say a really, I don't want to say seminal work, but certainly one that I think is the most meaningful I've read on this topic, because there's not a lot written explicitly on the adoption in Christ is the book Sons in the Sun by David B. Garner. Yes. This is a fantastic book and one that will probably open up and just blow your mind. It'll Your mind will implode as you read this, yeah. but primarily because it's mainly after the things that you've just said, because in the scripture, these divine missions, they do follow a specific pattern. And I think the reason why we're trying to emphasize this to such a great degree is that this is not in distinction to anything we've talked about before. So the father, right. this pattern is the father sends the son to accomplish his redemptive mission. And the father with the son is then sending the spirit to accomplish his sanctifying mission. And this missional pattern, which is what we're talking about, like your mission, should you choose to accept it, so to speak, corresponds to the eternal relations that constitute the divine persons. Right. The father eternally generates the son and the father with the son eternally breathes forth the spirit. So even as insightful as all of this correspondence is, it doesn't really fully capture this wonderful reality expressed in the doctrine of the divine missions. There is still the mystery, which is where you started us off on. Yeah. So like the eternal relations of the Trinity constitute in my mind, the why 
of the divine missions because they provide the divine prototypes and the goals of those missions. The goal of the son's redemptive mission is to make us sons and daughters in order that we might become the firstborn among many brothers. The goal of the spirit sanctifying mission then is to embrace us within the fellowship of the father and the son, pouring out the father's love into our hearts and awakening within us this filial cry this man, that was hard to say. This like <laughs> sense of like this is where the Abba Father comes from, right? It's it's and it, it's constituted not in this like kind of kitsch or throwaway way of crying out to Father, but it happens in the context of the divine missions rooted in the divine protocols, established in the divine essence of the persons of the Trinity. So the bottom line for me is this: the eternal relations of the Trinity are inflected in their undivided external operations, even as the external operations of the Trinity extend their eternal relations to elect creatures in a manner suitable to those creatures. And I know that I've anticipated a bit for what we're going to talk about next week, but that's the teaser, loved ones. We're going to get there. We're going to talk more about that. But it's worth trying to sink in and maybe even listening to all this all over again, not because like we're particularly eloquent, but because if you're hearing some of this for like the first time, it's just so rich. It's so deep. It's like taking a bite of really, really intense chocolate pie and being like, maybe that's all I can have right now. And then 10 minutes later being like, give me more of that pie. Because yeah. like you, you kind of have to metabolize to, I use that word too much, right? In this podcast, that's one of like my words. <laughs> Just you, go you with kinda, it, Jesse. You, you have to like, you know, kind of taste and see the Lord is good. And these are deep and again, profoundly rich things. And maybe things that like just seem like too much over us, but God has given them to us so that we might wade into them and again, kind of get pickled into them. By the way, where this matters, I think the most is these doctrines, whether it's like we're talking about uh, appropriating something or we're talking about the divine missions here, these really help us to become better readers of the scripture and they help deepen our communion with the triune God. So it, this may be the kind of thing you're kind of like, well, why does this really matter? Who cares? Like you guys are, are so deep in the weeds here that this can't be that practical. The bottom line is actually is, and it will radically change and impact the way in which you read the scriptures. It'll help you to be a better student of the scriptures, a better person who understands some of the wonderful, what it means to worship God. And it will lighten your heart. Believe me, it will. It feels like maybe these are heavy things, but it will lighten your heart and it will dramatically change the way in which you understand and worship God. And it's worth doing it for just those two, those, those two things alone. Yeah. Yeah. When, when I started to get my head around this way of thinking about salvation, it really, really changed my perspective on, on things. You know, I think we joke around about how certain quarters of, of Christianity think of, think of redemption as like a cosmic get out of jail free card. But I think we all have a propensity to do that, right? We think about salvation, especially as Protestants, primarily in terms of freedom from the penalty of sin, right? We think about it in terms of justification and rightfully so, because we were, we're part of a movement that was reacting to an overemphasis and misplacement of the doctrine of sanctification as though it were the doctrine of justification, But this theology, this way of looking at is really is, this is the patristic understanding. This is the early church understanding of salvation. I first started getting looped in on this when I was reading Athanasius. He has this beautiful section in, 
in uh, the, on the incarnation about why it was that the son became incarnate, right? The whole book is about why it is that the son became incarnate. But he basically says that the one through whom the father created the world, right? The, the word was flesh or the word God created the world through the word, right? John one, right? The one through whom the world was created is the fitting agent to redeem the world from its fall. That's a paraphrase, but that that's the idea, right? Because of the because of the role the son had in the initial creation as the the agent of the father, who was the one through whom the world was being made, it was fitting for the logos now to come and redeem that which he first created, which he first brought into being. It was fitting for him to do that. Well, flash forward to me reading Calvin, he's making a lot of these same arguments. And now we get to this. And, and you, like I said, people might be thinking this is like so esoteric. This is so nitty gritty. <laughs> I mean, I've already given you one example of how how that passage about the spirit being the spirit of adoption really only makes sense in the sense of him being the spirit of the father and the son together, right? right? Which is that's the procession of the spirit. But if you take a look at Romans chapter five, um, it says here, I'm going to just start in, in the beginning five, one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Justification through him. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, right? Sanctification and glorification. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because the love because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right. Well, what does the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit in eternity past say, except that the father loved the son with the spirit. He poured out the spirit eternally proceeding from him into the son and then together proceeding forth from them. That that right there is the doctrine of the processions now flat on the on the page here as an element of our salvation, right? The same way that in eternity past, obviously this is accommodated language, but the same way in eternity past, not as an act of will, but as an act of being, as 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 just being itself, just who God is, is the Father pouring out his love on the Son, and the Spirit is that love being poured out on the Son and then reciprocated to the Father. That's the that's the procession of the Holy Spirit right here on in Romans 5. So this stuff, this stuff, if you really get it in your head and get it in your heart, it makes the scriptures come alive in some of these soteriology passages in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise, in ways that quite honestly, they did, they just were confusing to me. The book of Hebrews didn't make any sense. What's all this about inheritance? What am I inheriting? I'm not becoming, I'm not becoming the ruler of the universe or am I? Right. Not, not I'm not saying I become God, but, but there's a reason that, you know, um, Paul says in Corinthians, even we'll even judge the angels, right? right? Humans are the centerpiece of all creation and are, are designed to be the co-regents with the Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity, ruling over creation along with our God. That's, that's what humans are. That's what humans are supposed to be. Well, all of this makes no sense if you don't understand that we're being engrafted into the Son by the Spirit of adoption. So we, we could keep on looping on this all, all day long. And like I said, we'll come back to some of this stuff when we get to the get to the specific work of the Son and work of the Spirit. But this cannot be underemphasized or overemphasized. This cannot be overemphasized <laughs> because this really, really will 
it really changes your piety. It changes the way you think about your salvation. If it's no longer just about, you know, if, if you're a really erudite Protestant about being freed from the penalty of sin and then being cleaned up enough to be front, be in front of Jesus, right? That's not what salvation is. Salvation is being swept up into the very inner life of the Trinity and being made right. one with one with right. God, not in some sort of Eastern crossing the creature creator divide theosis kind of a thing, but in a true, genuine, reformed understanding of co-regency with the Father. It, it right. really, you really can't go wrong by overemphasizing this as long as you don't go somewhere crazy and say that we become God or something like that. Um, it, it really is going to revolutionize the way you think about things. Right. Well, that's where we have to call it, because if we don't call it here, we'll just keep going on. It's true. It's true. Before we do end it, though, I want to I want to announce our next contest, because this one's yes, this is this a is fun exciting. one. We've been doing some book giveaways and we had a listener reach out to us who uh, is the owner of a uh, it's the owner of a Christian apparel uh, website called Systematic Threadology, which is is pretty much the most awesome Clever. name for a Christian apparel site. And he's got all sorts of cool stuff. You know, it's it's similar to other kinds of sites, but I would you know I would ask you to check it out. And he was kind enough. He heard us talking about. I don't think he made this as a result of our jokes about fanny packs, but he has <laughs> on his website a reformed themed fanny pack. Yes. It's purple. It's awesome. It says turbo reformed. There's a little verse on the back because who doesn't want to put anything besides snacks in your fanny pack, right? This is, this is where my <laughs> chips are going to go. I'm going to put all my like Hershey's kisses in here. And on the back, it says, so whatever you, or whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Boom. So like, it's this nice little reminder that whatever you're doing with your fanny pack, you should do it to the glory of God. We're going to give this away. He sent me a, he sent me one and we're going to give it away. So it's not too late. Uh, if you still have some midwinter, no reason shopping to do, you can check out this website again. It's systematic threadology.com and they have t-shirts. They've got all sorts of stuff. You know, you can get accessories. It's, it's a good site. Uh, and he's a listener to the show. He's a friend of the show. So give him a little bit of business this year. And if you want to enter to win this awesome fanny pack, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com uh, slash contest, or you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash 267 and enter to win there. I love it. Listen, where what other podcast could you listen to that gives you an opportunity to, to earn a, not earn, sorry, that's the wrong word. <laughs> Win. This is not, listen, we don't always preach, you know, salvation by works, but when we do, it's Christ's works. But in this case, <laughs> what we're talking about here is uh, winning a super slick, and it is really nice. I mean, you showed it to me, and I was like, man, that's a good looking fanny pack. I know. I want to get one for myself. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a work. It, yeah. It's. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, loved ones, the fanny pack is back and it's in and you're reformed and you love fanny packs and you love reformed theology. This is the ultimate combination. So yeah, make sure you do that. And while you're doing that, don't forget that you might want to leave us a voicemail and you can do that by dialing 607-444-2767. Bros. Exactly. And leave us a quick question. We're trying to gather up all of these questions for another question cast. Like for instance, maybe you listen to this question and or wait, listen to this question, listen to this podcast. And the question you have for this episode is what is or forms brotherhood stance on the pronunciation of, is it Augustine or Augustine? Because we said it both ways, 60 different times. It's true. <laughs> maybe that we're not going to answer that question because you got to ask it. 
And you got to dial 607-444-2767 to leave us a voicemail to do that. So go ahead and check out Systematic Methodology. Grab yourself a super sweet fanny pack and then enter the contest so you can win one for a friend and then leave us a voicemail. That's all you got to yes. do this week. That true. is it. That's a lot, Jesse. <laughs> That's a lot. That's like a big <laughs> homework list we just gave them. I'll well, tell you what. Here, do two of those thing. seven things that Jesse just asked you to do. <laughs> And you're still in good shape. No, but seriously, check out the contest. Enter to win. Uh, the other thing that we don't ask very often, you know, uh. if, if you if you are so inclined, one of the things that we ask you to do when you uh, do these contests is to visit our uh, iTunes entry, to, to go to the Apple Podcast page. Yeah. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, even if you're not, if you think that this show is worthy of someone else listening to it, go ahead and just drop a review. That doesn't help Please. us show up in search engines or anything like that. But what it does do is when someone is looking through the thousands of different Christian podcasts that are out there. The ones that have reviews and are, you know, 4.7 stars with, with, with 40 reviews, those are the ones that people are more likely to try. You know, the, the, the one that's like Joe's reform podcast. I don't know if there's a Joe's reform podcast. If there is, there, sh- there shouldn't, there, there isn't, there should be, but like Joe's reform podcast. And like the icon is the iTunes logo. And there's like one review that's like, my name's Joe, but I'm not the same Joe that does the podcast. And this is great. Like people don't, people don't check those out. Right. So if you want to help people find the show, then then leave a review and you can do that when you're when you're entering the contest. So you're already you're already working on it. Right. You're like I, halfway there. Like Bon Jovi. I love it. I love it. Here's the <laughs> wow, so many references. Here's the thing. We got to wrap this up, but here's the thing people should remember from this podcast episode and I want to summarize it in a question. You know what else was crowdsourced? <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't, Jesse. I can't. (sighs) Well, until next time, (laughs) honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. (laughs) 